The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Remember, Trump himself. Why aren't you guys seizing machines? He says to uh, uh, the two Justice Department officials, Rosen and Donahue. So it's clear. And and what was the obsession all about? It was all about these crazy theories about Venezuelan socialists planting secret algorithms in in voting machines. You know, all nonsensical stuff. But it leads to this obsession that ultimately leads to the Coffee County rape. I'm Anna Bauer, Lawfare Legal Fellow and Courts Correspondent, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 31st, 2024. During a late-night press conference in August, an Atlanta-area prosecutor announced a sprawling criminal case against Donald Trump and his allies for their alleged efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia. In a new book, investigative reporters Dan Clydman and Michael Isakoff tell the story of the events that led to that moment and the local prosecutor behind it all. Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes and I spoke with Clydman and Isakoff about the new details and insights revealed in their book, which is called Find Me the Votes, a hard-charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the January 6th committee's role in the Fulton County investigation, Sidney Powell's request for preemptive pardons, Rudy Giuliani's plan to access voting systems in Georgia, and recent allegations that District Attorney Fonnie Willis engaged in an improper relationship with one of her special prosecutors. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 31st, 2024. Find Me the Votes with Dan Clydman and Michael Isakoff. I want to start with the question of why Fulton County. You've got four uh, major cases against the president, former president this year. This isn't obviously the most important of the four. Why did you guys choose to focus on Fonnie Willis and the Fulton County case rather than, say, Jack Smith and the D.C. case or the subject matter more broadly of Trump's post-election conduct and the criminal cases that it engendered? The easy answer is this is the most interesting case by far. Uh, look, Georgia was ground zero for everything, for you know what we say in the book was uh, you know arguably the most anti-democratic plot in history. It is where Trump was most uh, focused, most his his efforts, his pressure campaign was uh, most intense, furious, and all compensating. And also it's it's worth noting, Trump did not act alone. 
Um, uh, he was not able to pull off what he tried to do all by himself. He had an army of Confederates. Uh, and that's why the Georgia case, which is a racketeering conspiracy case, is the most all-encompassing, going from the obvious, the pressure on Raffensperger and the phone call. And we have quite a bit of new on that, which I hope we'll get to how that tape came about, for example, all the way down to a story Anna knows well, the Coffee County raid. And I think we shed a lot of light on how the various parts of this fit together. So we have Sidney Powell with our new reporting uh, drawing up uh, plans for criminal break-ins at election offices around the country to be with the operatives protected by hunting licenses, preemptive presidential pardons. And how it goes from that, articulated early on in the weeks after the election, to an actual break-in, the Coffee County raid, which has been charged as a case of computer theft. So you can see how all the pieces fit together best in Georgia. And I think it best illuminates the scope of what Trump tried to do. Anna and, and Ben, let me make one other point about why we thought the Georgia story was so compelling. The, the human toll in Georgia went beyond anything we saw anywhere else. Trump's furious war in Georgia had appalling consequences for average Americans, innocent people, victimized by his uh, you know, reckless conspiracy mongering. And you had officials at every level, uh, from the lowest poll worker, people are all familiar by now with Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, uh, all the way up to the, to the governor, subjected to brutal abuse, uh, doxing, bombarded with frighteningly specific uh, death threats, sickening racial attacks, uh, unspeakable uh, sexual threats of uh, sexual violence, and it, it actually went beyond the elected officials themselves uh, or office holders themselves, their families. Brad Raffsenberger's wife, uh, Trish Raffsenberger, who we spoke to at length and looked at her text messages. You can't believe the onslaught of hateful and sexually violent messages uh, that she that she got. And, you know, this isn't just to tell a, a you know, a crazy story about what happened in in the aftermath of the 2000 election. This is the country we're living in. And it is extremely difficult for uh, the people that you need uh, to protect us from, from, uh, from these assaults on democracy uh, to be able to do that when they're under this kind of threat. And it's going to continue. And so I think we have to look at a lot of the Republicans. We, t we, we refer to it as the iron wall uh, of Republican resistance in Georgia who actually did uh, stand up to Trump, despite the brutal abuse that they got. And that's an important lesson going forward. So I, something that really struck me reading this book, you know, there's a lot of information packed in there. And it's not unusual for prosecutors, especially elected prosecutors, to speak to the media or members of the press who are writing a book about a high profile case. Uh, but something that really stood out to me as I read this book was how much Willis and her team were willing to tell both of you that is about their internal deliberations and decision making that went on during the investigation of this case. 
And and this is a case that has not yet gone to trial. That part wasn't easy, Anna. <laughs> right. I will say it's not like they handed that out. It's called reporting. <laughs> and we yeah. did a lot of it. And and they did not like just cough up all this stuff. It took a lot of work and a lot of piecing together lots of stuff. Yeah. And it's fantastic that you got that access. It says, you know, a lot about your reporting. It, there's this one scene that just really stood out to me as far as, you know, what you were able to get about some of the conversations that were going on among prosecutors. It's the scene that took place the day the special grand jury heard the Raffensperger find me the votes phone call for the first time. Uh, you report that Willis was there observing that day, and she later met with special prosecutor Nathan Wade, who's one of her top deputies in the case, to discuss the jurors' reactions. You report that Willis said, the phone call is good, but it's not enough. Clearly, the source for you know the the content of that meeting is someone who's on the DA's team or who was present for that meeting, and it's frankly kind of astonishing to me that they would tell two reporters the book coming out before the trial that the district attorney herself thinks a key piece of evidence is maybe not as strong as it's been made out to be. So the two of you have been doing this for a long time. You have a lot of experience working uh, with uh, prosecutors, talking to attorneys of all different types. Uh, what did you make of the kind of access that you were getting and did you ever get a sense of kind of maybe why the DA and her team were willing to talk as much as they did about their internal deliberations and decision making? Because this is now kind of an issue that's come up in the case itself, as Trump in a recent a recent motion has argued that District Attorney Fonnie Willis has been speaking too much in extrajudicial statements about the case. So kind of what did you make of all this as you were reporting it? Well, just to underscore, I mean, uh, you know, this took a lot of reporting and a lot of effort. They were not willing to just divulge internal deliberations uh, easily. But, you know, uh, you know how it works. You get a little bit, you you know, you push uh, others and you get confirmation of some and denials of other aspects of it. But I look, um, there is a lot of behind the scenes stuff here, but just um, uh, just tying in the first two questions, the one that Ben raised and, and when Dan was talking about the, um, the threats, the atmosphere, let me just take you to that scene that we start the book, which I think is one of the most astonishing, where on the night of the indictment, you were there, Anna, Danny and I were both there. We were all waiting for hours. She comes out the midnight press conference, finally announcing the, uh, the indictment. And what happened after? They had gotten this threat, an assassination threat. You know, the best time to get her to shoot her is when she's leaving the building. Fonnie Willis goes back from that press conference to her office, takes off her black business suit and pearls and puts on sweatpants, a T-shirt and a, a baseball cap. And then a body double on the staff puts on a suit matching what Fonnie Willis was wearing, as well as a Kevlar a bulletproof vest. And there's a decoy operation. The body double and a team drive out up from the garage where the assassination threat was suspected and bon 
Fannie Willis is smuggled out the back door. That the threats of violence, the reality of what that means for individuals trying, you know, in the prosecutor's office trying to do their job is so enormous. And can you imagine, by the way, Jack Smith or Merrick Garland having to be smuggled out the back of their offices after a press conference because of the threat of violence. But that's what we're dealing with in Georgia. And I think that, you know, shows just how powerful and frightening some of this stuff is. Yeah. So let's talk about that. One of the things that makes the book interesting is the apparent mismatch between the office and the project. That is, this is an office that, you know, she runs for because she's interested in gang prosecutions. She's interested in street crime. Uh, she's not a national political figure. And, you know, and she's not a progressive prosecutor. And That's she's not a progressive prosecutor. Liberals, she's, you know, are going to learn from reading our book. Yes. Uh, I actually thought that aspect was really interesting that she's a, uh, she's a, a, a figure who, notwithstanding her family history, you know, her father, you know, has quite the radical background. She is a pretty hardcore law enforcement type. And she, her office is reasonably well positioned to deal with street crime, but she has to bring in an expert on, on, on the RICO statute, which she's something of an expert on, but she's got to bring in somebody else. She's got to kind of think through these removal issues kind of for the first time. And so my, my question is at the end of the day, is this a story about, you know, the, uh, the state criminal justice system and the county level criminal justice system in Georgia, you know, backing up the feds in a, in a real kind of show of federalism, or is this a show, a, a story about a mismatch between the highest of high crimes that takes place at the Washington level and a, and a criminal justice system that's really geared up for, you know, prosecuting, uh, local rappers who, uh, you know, also run guns, which is, you know, another one of her big cases. Ben, I would say that the indictment and the, and the four plea deals since the indictment, uh, and I think there are likely to be more, is a vindication of the ability of a district attorney. You know, by the way, Atlanta is a major city. Fulton County is, most of Atlanta is Fulton County. So we're not talking about, you know, some small town somewhere. Uh, but vindicates uh, the the um, uh, ability of a, of, a, of a district attorney to take on a case like this. This wasn't a case that she wanted. I mean, when she started the job, she was dealing with a, an enormous backlog of criminal cases. The office had been pretty terribly mismanaged by her predecessor, Paul Howard. She went through the process of actually interviewing every single assistant DA in that office to make sure that uh, they had the quality of lawyering that they needed and that they could clear out uh, the deadwood. So she, I think, understood uh, even before she had the Trump case that she was going to have to build up that office. And then once she did, to go even further by bringing in people like uh, uh, John Floyd. And by the way, I, you know, I think uh, I think they were smart in also uh, talking to others uh, who had expertise uh, in these kinds of cases. I'm not sure 
uh, how how much Norm Eisen, for example, was speaking to them. But Norm, someone who uh, your listeners will be familiar with, uh, and and your colleague at the Brookings Institution, was writing you know very I- influential uh, legal analyses of these cases. I-, I know for a fact that they were paying close attention to what uh, what was in the Brookings report. Uh, and uh, and getting information elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to add one 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 more beat to this. You know, uh, Ben said before uh, that this is a prosecution for events in Washington. Actually, Georgia was the crime scene. Was the was the original yeah, crime scene. That's an important point. And 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 I think you know one of the more illuminating parts. Uh, we talk about you know the. Uh, the Raffensperger phone call was January 2nd. She starts, I believe, the next day. And, you know, it's she's the, the tape of the call is being played nonstop on cable TV. And people are dissecting the contents. Like, how, what do you make? What did he mean when he said find the votes and all? What's Fonnie Willis thinking about? Where was Raffensperger when Where he that was call? Raffensperger? Where was it? And it, yeah. he was at his home in Johns Creek, a wealthy suburb, but in Fulton County by just a mile or two. And she realizes once she learns that, that's my county. This happened in my jurisdiction. And that's what prompted her to launch this investigation. Yeah. So the other person on the call is in Florida. Well, one of the other one of the other people in the call. Right, the 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 third a third leg of the of the stool is in Florida. Right. Tell us about that. Right. I mean, I think it was one of the great untold stories of this whole saga. Uh, and um, the woman we're talking about who was in Florida, Jordan Fuchs, uh, who was the deputy to Brad Raffensperger, is, you know, I think some will, after they read our book, conclude that she is one of the unheralded heroes of this entire saga uh, because she makes the decision on her own, unilaterally, snap judgment that she's going to tape the president of the United States without telling her boss, Brad Raffensperger, without telling Mark Meadows, who had beseeched her to set up this call, and of course not telling Trump. She puts herself on mute and tapes the call. Why? Because she had to. She was motivated by trying to protect her boss. Um, she knew the dangers Raffensperger faced by having a conversation with Donald Trump during a time Trump is and his campaign is suing the Secretary of State, and knowing Trump's propensity for completely distorting anything that might be said, she made the tape as a uh, protection for her boss. What she didn't know is that she was in Florida at the time, which is a two-party consent state. So it could be argued it was an illegally taped phone call. Uh, Now, if Florida prosecutors were to try to um, make an issue of this, I think she'd have a pretty good defense because there's an exemption for law enforcement in the Florida statute and the Secretary of State's office is a law enforcement agency. But this was concerning enough that she through Raffensperger's office, uh, deflected a request for her to testify before the January 6th committee. And when she finally gets subpoenaed by the special grand jury, she testifies under immunity and acknowledges that she taped the call. 
So Ben mentioned, you know, this kind of question of fit. This is a county district attorney's office taking on a former president and his allies. Uh, but we learned from your book but that the district attorney's office did have some assistance of sorts through the January 6th committee. That was a very interesting part of the book. Lots of new details there that I didn't know. And and this is something that has kind of come up in the case recently as uh, various defense teams have sought evidence or uh, other correspondence or communications between the DA's office and the January 6th committee. So what can you guys tell us about this kind of you know communications that went on between the Jan 6th committee and the district attorney's office? Anna, the first thing we we uh, we learned was that the January 6th committee actually, for the longest time, wasn't returning the calls um, of uh, the, the district attorney's office and following Will- Willis's team. Uh, it took quite a long time before uh, the uh, the chief counsel of the, of the committee uh, eventually did. He was being called by Mike Hill, who was the top investigator uh, on uh, Fonnie Willis's uh, uh, Trump team. Eventually, Tim Hafey, the uh, chief counsel of the committee, uh, did call back and um, agreed to see uh, a, uh, a delegation from Fonnie Willis's uh, team. I mean, there's some suggestion out there, I think, from Republicans that this was collusion. This was just an investigation. Uh, the DA's office knew, as we all knew, that the uh, January 6th committee had done a tremendous job uh, collecting evidence and testimony and, and had uncovered a lot of new information, a lot of it about Georgia, uh, that was going to be critical to this investigation. So eventually, they make arrangements for uh, the DA's office, members of the DA's office, uh, to come up there. But I will say that there was, they first had to convince the chairs of the committee, uh, and Liz Cheney in particular was not excited about it at first. And, and I think a lot of the reason for that was because they were worried that Fonnie Willis's uh, uh, that the DA's office might might indict Trump before the committee finished its work and put on its presentation. And, you know, Cheney was, you know, politically minded and didn't want their thunder to be stolen. But in the end, uh, they were able to convince her that the investigation was going to take the Fulton County investigation would take much longer. There was no danger of that. And so they did uh, come up and everything that they saw was done in in camera, uh, uh, essentially. They were not actually given any documents. They were not given testimony. They had to actually look at it on computer screens and and, and take it down. But in the end, it was enormously useful to their investigation. Uh, I assume we're going to, at some point, get to the Michael Roman motion and all the allegations that have been swirling about uh, uh, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. But one of the many matters associated with that that I think has been way overblown is um, the Trump people making an issue of that there were contacts with the January 6th committee and contacts with the White House, and therefore this shows some sort of collusion. Actually, the uh, contacts with the January 6th committee, as Danny just explained, were just to take a look at what has become the entirely public evidence of what was in their depositions, what what they had had gotten. They weren't getting anything that isn't 
already out there in the public sphere. So the idea that there's some sort of collusion here doesn't really hold up. And the White House contacts are pretty simple. They, they wanted to interview former White House officials and former Justice Department officials, and you got to get approval from the current White House Counsel's Office to do that. It was not a swapping of evidence in any way. Uh, yet, you know, you have the Trump people trying to make an issue of something that is really not at all out of the ordinary. Well, since you mentioned Nathan Wade, yes. uh, he plays a less than central role in the book, uh, although but not he's a in the trivial. Book. I said I said a less <laughs> yeah, than yeah, yeah. central role, but yeah, uh, although non non trivial role. And one of the things I learned from the book, which is a little bit counter to the prevailing obsession with his relationship with. Uh, Fonnie Willis, is that he was like the third or fourth choice for that role. And I'm interested in your all's sense of which direction that cuts. I can kind of argue it either way, right? I can say, well, she goes for the big guns who, you know, are obviously qualified, and that shows that she's not particularly favoring the guy she's allegedly dating. And only when they turn her down, does she sort of settle for a perfectly able, if somewhat underqualified guy whom she happens to be dating. On the other hand, you could say, look, she, she asks the big guns. She knows what a qualified lawyer for this position looks like. They all turn her down and then she uh, goes for somebody that she, whose major qualification, uh, at least in this iteration, would be that she happens to be dating him, but he's manifestly less qualified than the alternatives. Yeah, C- a couple of things about that. First of all, we don't know when they started dating. So, you know, it is, uh, you know, I think there have been some representations from Ashley Merchant, who, who represents... Uh, Michael Roman and who filed the motion with all of these allegations that they were dating before. There's absolutely no evidence of that. And, you know, we've heard suggestions to the contrary that it didn't happen until they started uh, working together. But, you know, be that as it may, I think the thing to understand is, is, you know, when you put together a, a, uh, a prosecution team uh, for a case as complicated and high profile as, as this one, you know, I, I think you're thinking, you know, you're hiring people for different jobs and Nathan Wade, I think was never intended to be the lead trial lawyer in this case. When she finally did settle on it, he was never going to be the legal architect of this case. It was always anticipated that Nathan Wade would uh, be a kind of more behind the scenes player. He does show up in court but Anna knows this from being in that courtroom way more than I've been. He tends not to talk very much. He defers uh, to the other lawyers on the case. He doesn't get involved in a lot of the complicated legal arguments. He is apparently quite a good manager um, of cases and a manager of lawyers and lawyers' egos, which is always important in these kinds of cases. Furthermore, uh, he was managing the grand jury process. And uh, we interviewed some of the grand jurors. These are the special purpose uh, grand jurors. And they were actually quite impressed with Nathan Wade. One of them is a lawyer. Uh, and so he has um, some experience in this realm uh, to make these, these kinds of judgments. 
you know, he was leading them through hundreds of witnesses, thousands of documents, and um, uh, by all accounts, did uh, d- did quite a good job. So you have to sort of put it in 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 that context. Yeah, just one uh, one story in the book, which is I think quite relevant here, which is that um, uh, when Brad Raffensperger appears before the special grand jury and is testifying, and they get to the part where Trump is raising the prospect that he could be facing criminal prosecution, he, Raffensperger, if he doesn't do Trump's bidding and recalculate and uh, uh, find him the votes, one more than is needed, to flip Georgia's electoral votes. And Raffensperger deflects. In fact, it was the lawyer on the special grand jury who asked the question, who was adamant about asking that question, said, did you take this as a threat? Raffensperger, who at this point, you know, he's, well, he stood up to Trump's pressure, but he's very careful about what he says. He's still playing in the Georgia political world, planning on, at that point, running for re-election. And he kind of doesn't really give a straight answer. It's Nathan Wade who gets a copy of, of Raffensperger's book and pl- puts up on the audio visual the, uh, uh, the passage in which Raffensperger said, yes, I viewed this as a threat of criminal prosecution by the president. So it was, Ra- it was Wade who cleaned up Raffensperger's testimony. By the way, one, one just detail uh, about the, uh, uh, the lawyers who declined Fonnie Willis's entreaties uh, to come on board. One of them was um, Roy Barnes, the the former and last Democratic governor uh, of Georgia, and a real heavy hitter. I mean, he's not just a politician, but by all accounts, uh, he's an extremely uh, skilled uh, lawyer. And uh, a guy named Gabe Banks, who's a former federal prosecutor um, and a well-respected criminal defense lawyer, and someone that Fonnie Willis knows well, both of them said no in large part because of the threats uh, they knew that they would they would get. In fact, we talked to uh, Roy Barnes, uh, and he said, uh, hypothetically, would you want to have a bodyguard following you around for the rest of your life? Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So I want to talk a little bit about what you guys call the raid in Coffee County in the book. You devote a whole chapter to <laughs> we it. We figured I you per- might have some interest in that, Anna. <laughs> I personally call it the Coffee County caper. Uh, yeah, we but- use. I think we use that word. I think we say well. we use the you word do. caper. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think yeah. you do. A uh, Ben calls it La Faire. Uh, co- wait, you? What do you call it, Ben? <laughs> 
Lafayette Coffee. Lafayette Coffee <laughs> County. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you could at least say cafe. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> But whatever you call it, uh, we're talking about the aspect of the charge conspiracy in Fulton County that relates to the alleged unauthorized access of voting systems in rural Douglas, Georgia, at the elections office there. As lawfare readers and listeners know, and and Dan and Mike, as you know, I've taken a special interest in this uh, particular aspect of the conspiracy, and it's been something that in in terms of you know reporting on it, it over the past uh, few months, clearly it's Sidney Powell is alleged to have been involved. She was charged. She she pleaded out uh, to charges related to the voting system breach, and and you guys have this really fascinating reporting that you mentioned earlier that it relates to Sidney Powell and this plan to kind of break into uh, voting system offices in rural counties. And, and there was a particular focus on Georgia early on. But something that I've been focused on in the past is this role that Rudy Giuliani potentially played in developing plans to voluntarily access voting systems, particularly in Georgia, there is this meeting that occurred between Giuliani and Kathy Latham, who is also charged in Fulton County alongside Trump, related to the voting system breach. That does not appear in the indictment, though, and Giuliani has not been charged in relation to Coffee County. So what can you guys tell us about you know, Giuliani's involvement or potential involvement in the Coffee County escapade? And and do you have a sense of maybe why it is that it was Sidney Powell, but not Rudy Giuliani, who were ultimately charged in with respect to Coffee County? Um, because that is an interesting question to me. I think it's an excellent question, and I've wondered as well. Uh, you point out the meeting between uh, Giuliani and Kathy Latham, um, who I think is referred to as a as a whistleblower at some point uh, in the. Uh, the Willard Hotel. Uh, I think it was in the Willard uh, Hotel War Room. You, you know, we found on this this podcast that Giuliani has uh, that he's talking in you know barely disguised terms about Coffee County. I don't think he mentions Coffee County, but I think that uh, interview that 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 podcast episode occurs right it was around on the Steve time Bannon's with, podcast. Uh, that's right. It was Steve. Ban- it was that's right. It was Steve Bannon's podcast, and I think. I think it's it's right before Christmas, and I think right after the meeting with Kathy Latham, in which he talks about we've got something going on in Georgia, you know, that's gonna you know take place behind Kemp's back. He's not gonna know what's going on. Uh, it's crystal clear to me that he's talking about uh, Coffee County. And by the way, uh, and I think the January sixth committee un- uncovered this. Uh, you know, th- there is also there are also depositions. In which uh, you know people talk about Giuliani bringing up Coffee County in the in the famous unhinged December eighteenth uh, meeting where Powell and and uh, Mike Flynn and the others are trying to get Trump to seize uh, use the military to seize uh, voting machines. So so Giuliani seems to be up to his eyeballs in Coffee County, and uh, I'm not sure why the district attorney's office in Fulton County didn't go after him for that. They, they may after they read our book, uh, because I think there are additional details in the book that they are unaware of. But follow the bouncing ball here from 
Sidney Powell at the uh, when they're at the Westin in Northern Virginia talking about the criminal break-ins and the pardons. Rudy thinks that goes a little too far. But the obsession with seizing machines goes all the way to the top. Remember, Trump himself. Why aren't you guys seizing machines, he says to uh, uh, the two Justice Department officials, Rosen and Donahue. So it's clear. And, and what was the obsession all about? It was all about these crazy theories about Venezuelan socialists planting secret algorithms in, in voting machines, you know, all nonsensical stuff. But it leads to this obsession that ultimately leads to the Coffee County raid. One more beat on Coffee County. Uh, one new piece in uh, in the Coffee County chapter is the Chris Harvey memo. Remember, the defense to the Coffee County is well, we were invited in by the Misty Hampton and the uh, the Republicans in Coffee County. There's this memo from Chris Harvey in November. Chris Harvey is the state elections director for the secretary of state's office. He's hearing all this nonsense about Dominion machines, and he's getting worried that somebody's going to try to access the, the, those voting machines, which have confidential critical infrastructure about um, uh, voting that if got exposed could you know, allow hackers to break in. And he sends this memo to every state a county election director in November that says explicitly, and it's underlined, you may not release any of the voting machine data. You cannot release it under open records request. You cannot release it under any circumstances. He drew a bright line. He said he did it to prevent exactly what took place in Coffee County. So the idea that there was a permission to go in for this case of computer theft doesn't really hold up at all. I want to talk about the personality of Fonnie Willis. You spend a lot of time in the book, uh, among other things, painting a portrait of her and her story as a prosecutor, as a lawyer, as a politician. I was really intrigued the day that she showed up in in court to argue uh, a pretty routine, it was the gag order motion, and she showed up and argued it herself, that this is a first-rate trial lawyer, you know, who, like, she is way better at arguing motions than any of her staff, and is actually a, a hugely impressive just force in in a in a courtroom so uh, you know backing off of this case for a minute who is fonnie willis and and she's kind of your main character in some ways uh other than the fact that raffensperger happened to be sitting in fulton county you know how did she end up being where she is well first of all you you use the word force a force in the courtroom she is as many people have described her, just a force of nature as a personality, larger than life, and has the kind of confidence um, and bravado sometimes of a of a truly talented uh, trial lawyer. But but I just want to say because because sometimes when you say somebody's larger than life, you don't think of them necessarily as a detail person who's going to come in and argue argue a motion in you know, at, 
that level of granularity. And she yeah. was she is a fabulous technical lawyer, among Absolutely. other things. Absolutely. And and you know, we have some great stories about, you know, some of her courtroom exploits uh, that that uh, that they go to that. I will say my expectation all along uh, from talking to people around her was that she was going to play a significant role in trying this case herself. I would not at all have been surprised if she had done the opening. I would have fully expected her to do some of the uh, witness uh, questioning. And, you know, we'll see what happens um, as how, how all of this plays out since the controversy uh, has erupted. But I think if she hangs on, uh, we will see a lot more of, of Fonnie Willis in the courtroom. Look, she is a fascinating uh, woman. She is the uh, uh, literal daughter of, of the civil rights movement. Her father, who I think people may have begun to hear a little bit about, uh, was a, uh, a founder of the uh, Los Angeles uh, Black Panther Party. That's the, uh, that was a, a, an offshoot of uh, Huey Newton's party. But he was a gun-toting uh, a Black Panther and then eventually became a, a civil rights lawyer and a criminal defense lawyer, lived in Washington, was in D.C. Superior Court. Ben, when you and I probably were covering some of those trials uh, uh, many years ago, and Fonnie Willis was a, a little girl, five, six-year-old girl living with him. He raised her as a single father, which was pretty unusual in those times. And she used to come down uh, to the courthouse with him to arraignments. There's a famous story of her when her her father is in the back in the cell block interviewing um, potential uh, clients, and she's sitting up there on the bench with uh, uh, with a gruff uh, D.C. Superior Court uh, judge, and um, at one point um, she says, you know, he says, uh, "Step him back," which is courthouse parlance for uh, you know, take him back to the jail. It was that moment where she decided she wanted to be a judge. Uh, uh, she she told her father, and we interviewed her father at, at great length about this. Interestingly, he said to her, "Well, if you want to be a judge, you're going to need to be a lawyer first. And years later, he, the former Black Panther and criminal defense lawyer, uh, convinced her that she should become a prosecutor. That that was the clearer path to becoming a a judge uh, than to be a defense lawyer. He was so supportive of her and so close to her that he that he thought that uh, being a prosecutor was the way to go, even though um, he had been a, uh, you know, a, a civil rights lawyer and a criminal defense lawyer himself. Mike, I don't know if you want to talk about her path to uh, uh, to this job, but her courtroom abilities were pretty stunning. And we have Mike, you want to tell the story of uh, the bitch is a genius? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, she was, you know, I, I think I said before, the star litigator in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. And it, it, the word of, for young lawyers is if you want to know how to do a homicide case, go sit in and watch Fonnie Willis do it. She, it, it you'll learn something from that. Um, among we talk about some of her exploits in the, in the courtroom, but the one that is the, maybe the most fun is she gets there, there's a she gets a hold of a jailhouse tape of one of her defendants trying to make sure a witness potentially against them gets out of town um, so Fonnie Willis can't put the witness on the stand and interrogate her. And the guy says, the bitch is a genius. Uh, and as the reason he doesn't want the uh, the witness on the stand, uh, Fonnie Willis gets a hold of that, um, plays the tape, has a field day with it. And then her then boss, Paul Howard, gives her 
uh, a plaque, the bitch is a genius award, which she loved and would often show up to show off to uh, to others. The other thing to know about her is is she is a prepar- This goes to your point, uh, Ben, about her being detail oriented. She is a preparation freak uh, with uh, incredibly high standards for her team. And we have scenes of when she's in college doing moot, moot court competitions where she was locking herself in a room and, and you know, you, you couldn't get her away from, uh, from studying and, and she prevailed in, in these competitions. But we have a scene uh, in the book where a few months before uh, they were ready to bring the indictment, uh, she wants to go over all of the evidence uh, that they've compiled. And so... Nathan Wade brings in all of the other members of the team. They do a PowerPoint uh, to show the individual targets and what they have. And she starts, it's like a Supreme Court oral argument. I mean, before they can get a word out, she starts grilling them. You know, well, what document do you have to prove that? You know, what, what do you know about this? And a couple of minutes into it, she looks at them and says, you don't got this, you know. You know, this is this is effing terrible. She, Get the she, F out. She of kicks you. them out of her her office, including Nathan Wade. She kicks Wade out of the office, says this is terrible. <laughs> and then she she actually she storms out herself, leaving them kind of dazed. Uh, they go back um, and uh, do a lot more work. Uh, they come back and represent it to, to her. Um, and uh, she said to us, it was better. It was a C. Pause. It was actually a C minus. Um, <laughs> she is a, a workaholic and a, you know, a, a crazy about getting it right and getting the details right. Yeah. I mean, I, I found that scene really interesting in light of my experience watching her, which was that there was no question that she was not prepared for. She actually didn't prevail on the motion, but it wasn't because she didn't have at, you know answers to to questions, it's be- it was because Judge McAfee is an independent mind who's you know had a different instinct about the thing. But it was interesting to read that section in light of watching her. This is a highly you call her a preparation freak, and this is somebody who is herself very prepared and does not seem to have a lot of patience for staff who are not entirely prepared. I think we quote her saying, um, you don't get awards around here for participation. I'm not from that generation. That, yeah. that is vintage Fonnie Willis. All of which uh, just underscores what a disaster it would be for the case if she were to be disqualified because it would basically shut the case down. Uh, the whole office would then be disqualified and they'd have to find new prosecutors who have no background in the evidence, no background in the grand jury testimony. Um, and it would delay things, you know, certainly well beyond the election, but probably much longer than that. Um, I don't think that's going to happen in any case. I don't know what Anna's take is. Um, uh, you know, we're going to see uh, this week uh, Fonnie Willis's response um, uh, for the first time to the motion filed by Michael Roman, um, but I would not be surprised if we see a, a vigorous response that disputes at least some of what has been alleged that's out there. Well, it'll, it'll, I, it may dispute some of the, uh, some of what's been alleged, but I think it's going to be uh, even, you know, really vigorous on the law and on this question of whether sure. the facts allege, uh, allege represent a conflict of interest uh, that would 
disqualify her. The conflict of interest theory behind this case just strikes me as so far-fetched. The idea seems to be that because Nathan Wade was getting paid by the Fulton County District Attorney's Office and they went on vacations together in which at least some things that uh, uh, Nathan Wade paid for, they had a vested interest in keeping the case going and <laughs> prolonging it uh, so they could make and money. Keeping the case going against money. Mike Roman. Uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, against any of them. It's preposterous. For, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence to, to back up what is being alleged there about that this was a motivating factor. We went through every decision that was made in the course of this case, and you know we dissect them, and it's pretty reasonable. One can understand why each step was taken at each direction. Remember, at the beginning, she doesn't get any cooperation. People are demanding subpoenas if they're going to testify. She She's got all these regular grand juries that are dealing with murders and rapes and gang uh, warfare uh, that doesn't have the bandwidth to do an in-depth investigation. She finally gets the special purpose grand jury. Um, they take months and months as because it's a long, complicated case. But um, you know the underlying claim in the in the Roman motion just doesn't you know doesn't seem to add up at all to me. All right. I want to zoom way out to close, which is to ask you, you've got a million scoops in here. You've got a million details that nobody knew before. I want to ask the so what question that, you know, what what is the big lesson here of this story that you have you have this crazy set of schemes that are all related to keeping Trump in power. Uh, that was the gravamen of the indictment. You have this story of a force of nature, Atlanta prosecutor who comes to power on a on a on the back of the flop of her predecessor, which we didn't talk about, but. Um, who then kind of inherits this case because it happens, one end of the call happens to be in Fulton County. And you have the development of this case alongside the Justice Department's investigation and the January 6th investigation. For the person who looks at this and says, I don't care about Atlanta. I don't care about Georgia politics. I care about Donald Trump and democracy protection. What's the importance of this story? Look, there are a lot of different ways to answer the question, uh, which is a good question, Ben. But what I would say is for those people who are worried about Donald Trump and worried about democracy, uh, they ought to be worried uh, about uh, Donald Trump's ability to, to slip noose after noose. Um, and that if you're going to actually protect democracy and, 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 and vindicate uh, the, the importance of the rule of law, sometimes, uh, you, you know, you, you need a, 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 a multi-front offensive. Um, and under our system of federalism, it's, it's not just the feds. And the feds, you'll look at Jack Smith's case. I mean, uh, it, it's a very, very narrow case. And um, it does not encompass the broad scope of criminality that we saw uh, in the post-election uh, period. Georgia does much more so, you know, from everything from, you know, the, the lying to state officials to 
the threats against uh, the horrific threats against people to Coffee County, uh, to the fake elector scheme. And that wide scope of alleged criminality, I think, is is really important. Two other things that I would say, echoing things that I had said before. One is the human toll in Georgia. I think it is really important for people to understand that what Trump and his cohorts did in Georgia had a profound effect on large numbers of individuals, on just regular Americans, citizens, poll workers uh, who were just doing their jobs, the, the, the wives and husbands and children of elected officials who were doing their jobs. This is something that all Americans, I think, ought to uh, care about because it's not just some far off uh, thing where uh, people who are involved in in politics are at, at risk here. It's really all Americans. The tech worker for there was a, a young tech worker for Dominion uh, in Georgia um, who because and, and this gets to the next point I, I want to make quickly because Ron Watkins, one of the key QAnon figures, some people think he was Q himself, tweeted out a a bogus uh, a video alleging that this tech worker was manipulating. Uh, uh, voting data. This guy came under horrible assault. Um, and to this day, uh, as we understand it, it is still affect, uh, is, is still suffering from the, the sort of PTSD effects of all of this. And I, I mentioned QAnon. This is also about what could happen in 2024. Uh, so we spent a lot of time uh, writing about Lynn Wood, for example, who was a celebrated trial lawyer. You know, everyone remembers him from the Richard Jewell case or John Benet Ramsey, and then eventually goes down the QAnon uh, rabbit hole uh, to the point where he is tweeting that uh, Mike Pence is going to be executed by a firing squad and Chief Justice John Roberts uh, is um, involved in pedophilia and sex, the sex trafficking of children, a cornerstone of the Q- QAnon conspiracy. Well, all of this was riling up people in Georgia and around the country. And uh, had real uh, consequences. QAnon sort of has faded a little bit from the from the national consciousness. We don't write about it as much as we did in the aftermath of the 2020 election, but it is, these dark forces are bubbling beneath the surface. And guess what? We are about to have a rematch of Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the presidential uh, contest. And, and, and that is going to fulfill the prophecy of, of the QAnon crowd. And you can bet that Donald Trump is going to be uh, tapping into that paranoia and legitimizing those crazy beliefs. And that has the potential to cause more violence. And so this isn't just a, this isn't just a, a colorful and exotic story about conspiracy theorists. Uh, this is an important story about what could come next. Mike, bring us home. There is something fitting that this case has been brought in Georgia, a state that straddles the fault lines of American politics by a local DA who is literally a daughter of the civil rights movement, um, who has shined light through this case and all its ancillary waves on the racial dimension that underlay so much of what was going on. The Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss story, two African-Americans who become the brunt of the targets for Trump's stop the steal nonsense and bolstered by Rudy Giuliani and all the others. 
there's a racial element there that you cannot escape. And, um, you know, in some ways, the, the, uh, the fact that it's Fonnie Willis who has brought these charges, I think, speaks volume and is, you know, could well be, depending on how things play out, a very um, American story. We are going to leave it there. Mike Isakoff, Dan Clydman. The book is Find Me the Votes, a hard-charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Been a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is edited by Jen Patyahowell, and your audio engineer today was Ben Wittes. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.